What's up, everybody? This is The Booch, and this shout-out goes to all of the members of The Booch Cast Nation. On behalf of the entire team and all of my affiliates, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you guys so much from the bottom of our hearts for your continued support of The Booch Cast. Whether it's wrestling recaps, interviews, politics, variety shows movie reviews, whatever episodes we come out with, you guys listen, you guys tune in, and you show your support. And it means the world to us. And we're going to commence with this latest episode in just a moment. But I want to take this opportunity right now to let you guys know something really huge that is going on in the world of the booch. I am now officially on Cameo. That's right, the Cameo. The same Cameo where celebrities go and give personal shout-out videos for all their fans. And I'm here to let you guys know that for the affordable price of just $25, you can get a personalized video from me on Cameo. And it can be for any occasion that you want. You got somebody you want me to wish a happy birthday? I'll make it happen. You want me to congratulate someone on graduating high school or college? I'll make it happen. Whether it's a happy holidays video, it can be a gender reveal, it can be somebody who needs some motivation, you want the boots to motivate you, or if you got somebody in your life that you want to break up with, I'll help make the breakup happen. Or if you got somebody in your life that you want to tell to fuck off and you want it done booch style. All you got to do is go to cameo.com slash booch365. There'll be a link in the description box of every episode of the Boochcast from now till the end of time. Go there, book your video, customize it however you want. Let me know how you want it done, and I will make it happen for you. So go to cameo.com slash booch365 right now and book your personalized video today for the affordable price of $25. And now, on with the show. Down in Southern Watch, flying my F-16. Oh, when Lee called for the picture, and AWACS came back clean. But I saw contact on my scope, and it was running hot. And although I wasn't targeted, I went ahead and shot. Well, I never even noticed that my nose was pointed east. And that Iranian fighter pilot was surprised to say the least And I tried to take it back, but by then it was too late And a million angry Arabs started heading for Kuwait So here's to you fighter pilots, victors of the war That got us all this real estate that's backed up to the shore and now all's about the barrel, and it's all because of me. Cause I'm the motherfucker who started World War Three. French would have to get into the mess. American audacity, well, it had to be addressed. For they sent their fighters to the sky, but it was all in vain as they sought asylum in the American Commonwealth of Spain. So the English crossed the channel, and it was a sight to see. When the queen dropped down her trousers and she shit on Normandy And if you think we were happy when we drank all of their wine You should have seen the Polacks when they got to cross the Rhine 
So here's to you fighter pilots, victors of the war That got us all this real estate that's backed up to the shore And now they whistle Dixie in the streets of Gay Perry Cause I'm the motherfucker who started World War III When we overran Saigon Then a thousand drunken frat boys Had to moon them from Taiwan But the bombing of the embassy In Moscow broke the ice Now that was just an accident And it happened only twice So they launched their MiGs two by two Never to return and no matter how much we shot them down, they never seemed to learn. Their suicidal bravery made us feel bad for them. So on Tuesdays it was heaters only, Wednesday BFM. So here's to you fighter pilots, victors of the war. That got us all this real estate that's backed up to the shore. And now China's just a word that you read in history. Cause I'm the motherfucker who started World War III. Shonger, you're next. What's up, everybody? This is Vinny Bucci, a.k.a. The Booch, and welcome to The Booch Cast. This week, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special surprise for you guys. And this surprise has a little bit of a twist to it. This is what I like to call, ladies and gentlemen, a new classic pay-per-view review. And by that, I mean it is a classic pay-per-view review. We're looking at a pay-per-view from yesteryear. But this is not a classic that I put up from the old school SoundCloud days. Because as you guys know, I am putting up classic segments and interviews and wrestling talk from the SoundCloud page and bring it here to our new podcast platforms here on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcast, and iHeartRadio. But this particular pay-per-view review here is one that's not from the SoundCloud days. I am actually in my studio sitting here recording it. So this is brand new. This is not something you've heard before. This is brand new for your ears. Now, that's not the twist because I we do new classic pay-per-view reviews in the past. The twist for this one is I am doing this review all by myself. I'm proud to be all by myself on the Booch Cast. That's right. Gator Ricky Ross will not be on this episode. Now, I'm not going to explain why because I just want to jump into this review and get it over with. But on a future variety show, and I'm not sure yet if that variety show is going to come out before this airs or after this airs. But there will be a variety show either before this review or after this review, whenever I decide to put it out, that is going to detail why Gator is not part of this pay-per-view review. And the reason I'm saving it for the variety show is because I want Zach to be around when I talk about it. And B, I don't want to waste a lot of time talking about something that if you're a frequent listener of the show, you know what I'm talking about. So what I'm going to do is jump into this pay-per-view. And basically how this works is uh, here on the Boochcast, we look at classic pay-per-views from WWE, WCW, and ECW. And we do them from the perspective of not just people who are fans of wrestling, but also from the perspective of people who work in the business. And as you guys know, uh, you know Gator's history. And like I said, Gator's not going to be part of this, so I'm not going to go into it. But you also know my history. I have been a ring announcer, a commentator. I've done street team shit that I hope I never have to do again. I have popped the popcorn. I have chauffeured wrestlers to and from the building. I have been a manager as well. Like I pretty much have the indie wrestling scene covered. You name something in independent wrestling, chances are I've done it before. 
So that's where a lot of my wrestling knowledge comes from, combined with the research that I've done over the years, studying wrestling, you know, reading books and seeing interviews from the great minds of professional wrestling. I know my shit when it comes to pro wrestling. I have done the proper research, and that's what makes me the great analyst that I am and separates me from all the random marks that have podcasts and are rest- and call themselves journalists and shit like that. I've actually done research in the business, and I know my shit. And the pay-per-view we're going to be diving into today is WCW World War III 1996. Now, this was, of course, the second World War III pay-per-view event. It took place on November 24th, 1996 from the Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, Virginia. Figures there'd be a Virginia show at a time like this. And similar to the Royal Rumble format, this event marked for the first time the winner of the World War III Battle Royal would receive a title shot at the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. So this is what makes the uh, the World War III match similar to the Royal Rumble. The fact they are now establishing the winner will get a title shot. Now the only difference between this and the Royal Rumble is they don't specify whether or not it's going to be the main event. And part of the reason is because in WCW, 9 times out of 10, the world title match is the main event of the pay-per-view. Because WCW knew how to structure their pay-per-views. Now, there was 10,314 people in attendance. And the tagline was 60 men, 3 rings, 1 battle royal, total destruction. And of course, we have uh, the commentators. We have Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, Dusty Rhodes, Mike Tenay, Larry Zbysko, and Lee Marshall. Now, Tony, Bobby, and Dusty are the three main commentators throughout the show. But Mike Tenay joins Dusty Rhodes at ring 1 during the main event. Larry Zbysko does ring three during the main event and Lee Marshall does ring three during the main event and Tony and Bobby team up to do ring two so that's how they divide up the commentators so you have the three guys who do the main matches and then they bring out the other guys for the multiple rings in the match so after the main card is over Tony and Bobby go to ring two Dusty's at ring one, Mike Tenay comes over and joins him, and then you throw Larry Zabisco and Lee Marshall at ring three. Then we have Mean Gene Oakland doing the interviews, and we have David Penzer doing the ring announcing. David Penzer, great ring announcer, worked with him in the past. And then the referees are Randy Anderson, Mark Curtis, Scott Dickinson, and of course the senior official, Nick Patrick. And without any further uh, doo-doo, we're going to get into the first official match of the evening for the J-Crown Championship. Ultimo Dragon with Sonny Ono defends the title against Rey Mysterio Jr. Now, the J-Crown Championship consists of eight different titles. There are eight titles, and this is usually something I believe it's from uh, New Japan or one of the Japanese territories. Because I think New Japan and WCW had a working relationship for a period of time. Because this is not a title created by WCW. This is something that New J- from New Japan, because Ultimo Dragon spent a majority of his time in New Japan, and he would come over to WCW from time to time, and he had the J-Crown title. Now, all eight titles are on the line in this match. That's why it's the J-Crown Championship. So just to give you guys a little bit of context of what the J-Crown Championship is. Now, Dragon throws kicks, but Ray dodges them. They lock up, and Dragon does a side headlock takeover that Ray turned into a head scissors. Dragon now starts working the arm of Ray. Ray trips him and slams his leg. And I wrote in parentheses, that can break a leg. Because the way he slammed that leg, it looked like he was going to break it. And I don't know if that's a testament to how good of a worker Ray is, or if the fact that they were sloppy on that. But that that looked pretty risque. Now, thankfully, nobody was hurt. But if not done properly, you could seriously break someone's leg the way he did that. That, that looked very bad. Dragon does a scoop slam and a short elbow drop for a two count. Dragon locks in a chin lock. Ray breaks out and works the arm, but Dragon flips out. Standard cruiserweight chain wrestling. They both do springboard cruiserweight moves, and it was hard to keep up. It was very hard to keep up in this match. And that's probably the one thing that's hard about modern wrestling is trying to keep up with all the shit they're doing because they're flip-flopping around. That's why um, Scott Hudson, who was a commentator for WCW, but in the later years, he wasn't here during this time, or if he was, he was not on TV much. Uh, Scott Hudson actually taught me, because I was he was one of the guys that mentored me when I was commentating in the business. He taught me that during moments like this, it's best to just stay quiet and let them do their thing. 
and then wait till they slow down before you tell more of the story. Because trying to keep up with them, it it's just, it's very difficult to do. So, you know, your job is to tell the story of what they're doing in the ring. So if they're doing a bunch of crazy high spots, just let them do their high spots, maybe tell a little bit of a story in between while they're doing that, and then wait for a moment when you can chime back in. And that's pretty much what uh, the commentators had to do here and also what I would have had to do had I been in that situation because a lot of times you can't keep up or type things because you know you're trying to transcribe what's going on and they're just going all over the goddamn place which you know obviously that's the way to do it to be professional but since I'm not commentating a match I can say it here those moves are unnecessary now the reason they worked in WCW is because only the cruiserweights did these moves the big stars didn't do this shit. That's why you can't have a cruiserweight division in wrestling today. Because all the moves the cruiserweights do, the top guys are doing. So if the top guys can do them, what makes the cruiserweight division so fucking special? Don't worry, I'll wait. Exactly. See? There isn't anything special. That's why the cruiserweight division stood out. Because they did things the main event guys didn't. There was variety, and it kept it interesting. But also, cruiserweights didn't just flip and do high spots. They also had ground game. Now, granted, these guys, their ground game's not as strong as other guys, but they did have a little bit of ground game here and didn't just flip around the ring. Mostly because they were wrestling people their own size. Dragon hits multiple kicks, and the last one knocks Ray down. Dragon slams him into the turnbuckle. Dragon chops him and then throws him in the other corner, but Ray reverses, and then Dragon back body drops him onto the apron, and then drop kicks him to the floor. Dragon hits a German suplex for a two count. Dragon sends Ray high into the air, and he crashes him back down. Dragon hits a vicious backbreaker onto Ray. Dragon locks in a single leg crab. Dragon hits a powerbomb and then a guillotine for a two count. Dragon hits a spine buster and a dragon swing that sends both men down. Ray is hurt, but Dragon is dizzy. Sonny watches Ray like a hawk. Dragon hits a fisherman suplex with a two count. He hits a brain buster for another two count. Dragon goes for another suplex, but Ray reverses into a small package for a two count. Dragon locks in a heel hook submission. Ray fights out and Dragon hits a tombstone pile driver. They fight on the outside and Dragon sends Ray into the guardrail. Hits a tombstone on the outside. Does a plancha splash onto the floor. Sonny tries to help up Dragon by fanning him. Which, that's fucking weird. Dragon and Ray get back in the ring and he sends him head first in the turnbuckle. Hits a hurricanrana for a two count. Dragon hits a running sit down powerbomb and Ray kicks out again. Should have been the finish. Yeah, that right there should have been the fucking finish. You're hitting a running sit-down powerbomb. You shouldn't end the match any other way. And obviously, I say that should have been the finish because obviously Ultimo Dragon goes over in the match. And I knew in advance before I started to sit down and type all this that he was going to go over in the match. And that's why I'm saying should have been the finish because you're not going to hit a better spot than that. That's a great way to end it. It's a decisive win that would put Ultimo Dragon over. Ray fights out of the turnbuckle with a double spin kick and a moonsault off the top ropes for a two count. Ray jumps in the turnbuckle and then flips onto Dragon on the floor. He then throws him back in the ring. Ray hits a sunset flip and Dragon kicks out and then rolls up Ray for a two count. Ray cartwheels into a West Coast pop for a two count. Dragon does a dragon suplex and Ray kicks out. Also should have been the finish. There, you had another good spot to end the match and you chose not to do it. That's another stupid thing. Ray jumps over the ropes, Dragon bounces him off the ropes and it was sit down powerbomb for the win. So, yeah, the finish was aight, but you had two instances where it could have been better. So, overall, it was a decent cruiserweight match. Not a lot of fuckery, but things to be expected. So this was cruiserweight wrestling done somewhat right. There weren't a lot of phony spots and they knew how to work each other in the ring. What was even more shocking was there wasn't a lot of interference on the part of Sonny Ono. And I have no idea why. Because Sonny Ono is one of those managers. He loves to interfere in matches. He takes great pride in it. So the fact that he didn't do that here shocked me. And this match was 13 minutes and 48 seconds. And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening. We've got Nick Patrick versus Chris Jericho with Teddy Long. Now, as we all know, Nick Patrick is, of course, a referee. He is the NWO referee. So at this point, Nick Patrick is established as the NWO referee. So they know that he is a guy who will cheat for the NWO. This is when Nick Patrick became a heel referee and was very good at being a heel referee. Now, this came about because at Halloween Havoc 96, which I don't know if we've covered that one or not, but at some point we will, apparently Nick Patrick helped NWO member 6 in defeating Chris Jericho in a match by making slow counts during Jericho's pinfall attempts on 6. 
Jericho's manager, Teddy Long, protested on Patrick's actions, which led to Patrick's lawyer, Al Sharp, reminding everyone that Long used to be a senior referee and got suspended due to his dirty tactics. So that's how Teddy Long went from being a referee to a manager. Patrick continued his unfair officiating in matches, and on the November 11th episode of Nitro, Patrick disqualified Jericho in a match against Conan, while Conan kicked Jericho into Patrick. On the November 16th episode of Saturday Night, Jericho challenged Patrick to a match at World War III, with Jericho's one arm tied behind his back. The match was made official on the November 18th episode of Nitro. So that's how we got this match right here. Now, obviously, when we do Halloween Havoc 96, we'll go into more detail about that match, but I just wanted to bring it up here so people can understand why the fuck this was even happening. And as we mentioned before, Jericho has one arm tied behind his back. They circle each other, and Nick talks trash and shoves Jericho. And then Jericho with one arm shoves him and then hip tosses him. He's wearing a neck brace that everyone is convinced is a fake injury. And of course, the neck brace, I mean Nick Patrick. He's wearing a neck, a neck brace. Nick tries to back away from Jericho. Chris lets him into the ring. Nick asks for a test of strength and mocks the fact that he can't do two hands. That Jericho can't do two hands. Jericho locks one in, and Jericho puts him in a hammer lock. Nick fights out and reverses it. Jericho reverses it and sends him into the turnbuckle. Jericho hits him with multiple kicks. Jericho hits another hip toss and then Nick rolls out of the ring. Nick and Teddy talk trash and he shoves Teddy, but Teddy shoves him back and the ref restrains Teddy. Jericho blocks Nick's punches and responds with kicks. Nick decks him with the other hand and then Jericho decks him and Nick rolls out of the ring. Jericho brings him back in and steps on his foot and clotheslines him. Nick tries to run and Jericho hits an axe handle. Mick throws Chris into the ring post. Nick runs at him and Jericho moves and Nick hits the ring post. Jericho goes to punch him and Nick moves out of the way and Jericho punches the ring post. Nick kicks him and then snapmares him. He then hits a natural selection. Nick then punches Jericho in the corner. Jericho fights back and sends Nick into the corner. Hits him in the jaw and elbow. Nick throws him into the turnbuckle and Jericho kicks him off and then slams Nick into the turnbuckle 10 times. Jericho does a one-armed Irish whip and then back body drop. Nick tries to run and Jericho gives chase. Nick puts the boots to Jericho and then does a diving clothesline. Nick climbs to the top rope, but Jericho grabs him with one arm and throws him down to the mat. Jericho then hits a super kick for the win. The ref unties Jericho and Teddy raises his hand. Now, this match was very, very basic, as you can tell. But I am okay with the match being basic because Nick Patrick is technically a referee. But here's another thing. Nick Patrick is also the son of the wrestling legend, The Assassin, who is better known in the wrestling industry as Jody Hamilton because his shoot name, Nick Patrick, is Joseph Nicholas Patrick Hamilton Jr. That's his birth name. He shortened it to Nick Patrick when he became a referee, and I think it's because at the time he didn't want people to know that he was Jody Hamilton's son and wanted to get in the business on his own merit. Hell, I didn't even know he was Jody Hamilton's son until I started working for UCW and we had Jody Hamilton helping out at a couple shows, basically helping out with the booking and organizing and everything else. So that was something that I learned. But the fact that he's the son of Jody Hamilton tells me he learned a couple moves in a ring. Usually when you're from a wrestling family, you know at least a hold or two, I think. So it doesn't shock me that Nick Patrick can work a couple moves. But at the end of the day, he is also a referee. So in order to make the match believable, you had to have Jericho have one arm tied behind his back. Because if Jericho has both his arms, this match needed to be a squash. Or Nick Patrick would have to kick him in the balls or do some kind of dirty tactic or have some type of interference in order to get an advantage on Chris Jericho and make it look believable. Because this is back when Jericho cared about making things believable in a ring. Obviously with AEW, it's hit and miss with how he makes things believable. But back then, Jericho had a good head on his shoulders when it came to the business. So by doing this, they made it work. And it was done fairly well. And the match was 8 minutes and 2 seconds. And I'm sure if a certain individual was here, he would go, Of our lives, we can't get back. But I'm not doing that because I fairly enjoyed this match for what it was. And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening. We've got Jeff Jarrett one-on-one -on -one against the Giant. Jarrett gets in the ring and immediately attacks the Giant who throws him off. Jarrett hits the Giant, but it doesn't phase him. Jarrett dodges the Giant and then throws a couple punches at him. Jarrett punches on Giant in the corner, but he throws him off. Giant nails a clothesline. 
Giant throws Jarrett into the corner. Giant dives on Jarrett in the corner, but he moves out of the way. He splashes the Giant and then drop kicks him. He goes for another splash and Giant kicks him off and Giant scoop slams him. He drops an elbow on him. Giant walks over Jeff. Giant picks him up and chops him in the corner. Giant then clubs him in the back and puts him in the corner and throws him into the other corner. Giant kicks him in the gut and throws him into the other corner. Giant chokes him with his boot. Sting walks around the rafters and fans spotted him. Giant hits a big boot on Jarrett and then a leg drop. Sting leaves the catwalk. Sting comes down through the crowd. Jarrett hits Jeff with a backbreaker. Giant goes for a splash, but Jeff moves out of the way. Jarrett hits a crossbody for a two count. Sting jumps the barricade. Jarrett sends Giant out of the ring. Sting hits a scorpion death drop on Jarrett. Ref doesn't see it as the ref tries to count out the Giant. Giant gets back in the ring and choke slams Jarrett for the win. Now, this match was very, very basic. And it was basic for obvious reasons. Number one, Jeff Jarrett is a solid worker who doesn't do a lot of fuckery. And the giant is a giant who wrestles like a fucking giant, which is what a giant is supposed to do. Big men are not supposed to do cruiserweight shit. Why? Because it buries the cruiserweights. A giant is supposed to wrestle like a giant, which is something that the giant had to learn in the early stages of his career. Yes, the Giant was athletic and could do a lot of athletic moves. But just because you can do a move doesn't mean it's to be done. Because the key element to every match is psychology. That's a key thing. So these guys did the job they were supposed to do. Now, of course, this is Sting when he's in the rafters because he's doing the, uh, the crow gimmick. You know, this is where he's the quiet Sting and he's kind of just observing shit. And nobody knows if he's with the WCW or with the NWO. Sting kind of became a loner and a free agent because he felt like WCW was taking him for granted. So he decided to basically become his own person. So he comes out, takes out Jarrett for whatever reason, and helps the Giant win. So why Sting attacked Jeff Jarrett, I have no fucking idea. Because Jeff Jarrett at this point was not a member of the NWO. He wouldn't become a member of the NWO for another four years. So I have no idea. All I know is Sting being around kept interest in the match. And again, I like that the Giant did giant shit. You know, the scoop slams, the elbow in the corner, the the boots. He was doing all the basic moves, but it was how they did it and where they placed it that made the match work. And they showed you can do more with less. Less is more sometimes. You don't need to be doing crazy shit in every fucking match. All you got to do is make the fight look believable. And that's what they did. Now, it might have been boring because this wasn't a story that people were emotionally invested in. But as a match, it did the job properly. And the match was six minutes and five seconds. And that's all it needed to be. And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening. We have a tag team match. The Amazing French Canadians with Colonel Robert Parker versus Harlem Heat with Sister Sherry. Now, Jacques and Booker T start things off. They lock up and Booker works the arm. Jacques fights out and gets a side headlock. Booker fights out and gets one of his own. Jacques shoots him off and Booker gives him a tackle. Jacques nips up and hits a drop kick. Booker nicks up and heals his trademark back kick, but he twists the arm first. And that's a key thing. And when I was watching a lot of these, I put a lot of emphasis on the fact that the arm was twisted because of an issue that happened earlier this year where I was getting annoyed with a certain move called the Mexican arm drag. And I fucking hate this move because it's one of the fakest moves I've ever seen. It's where you basically grab someone's arm, run up to the turnbuckle, and then do a flip. Or you're holding somebody's hand like that commander jack off who basically bounces around the ropes and does a little fancy trick before he brings somebody down not knowing the guy on the bottom could easily pull this motherfucker down. And people try to compare Commander to The Undertaker, and I said The Undertaker's better, because he goes up to the top rope, he twists the arm first. And a lot of people on social media thought, or at least on Twitter I should say, thought I was crazy for saying, oh no, the dreaded twisting of the arm. Yes, you twist someone's arm to get wrist control. That's called working the fucking arm. If you have somebody's arm twisted, yes, there have been cases like Kozlov pulling Undertaker off the rope while their arm was twisted. But you notice it rarely fucking happened? Because when you have control of somebody's arm, it makes it harder to do. If you have somebody's arm twisted, and then you go up the top rope and club the back of the head or the back of the arm, it's believable the person wouldn't fight out because you have control of their wrist. 
It's about risk control. Hell, you learn this basic shit in wrestling schools. I learned this doing karate as a kid. When someone would grab your shirt, you would grab their arm and twist it, and you would jerk up the wrist because that's how you got the person to get their hand off of your shirt. Now, of course, you had to be quick about it because if the guy had a strong enough grip on your shirt, you're not going to break free, but twisting the wrist is important. Hell, in basic amateur wrestling, a lot of times when you see guys moving their hands back and forth while they're circling each other, they're fighting for wrist control because if you control the wrist, you control the hand, and you control the match. So that's why twisting the arm is fucking important because you're supposed to make wrestling look like a real fight. Even though we all know it's a work, you're not supposed to make it blatantly obvious. That's an insult to the intelligence of the audience that is in the seats watching the show. And the audiences at home that in this case are paying for a pay-per-view. It's supposed to look real. Because for a period of time in wrestling, they were made to believe it was real. Because they lived their gimmicks 24-7. They didn't expose the business. They made you believe this guy right here hated this guy right here. Then eventually, the seeker got out, but even after the seeker got out, they still made you believe while you were in the building or around the building because they cared about the business and their craft, which unfortunately, a lot of people in the business today don't care. They might say they do, but they really don't because if they did care, they wouldn't do the silly shit that makes the business look fake. He then tags in Stevie Ray, and they hit a double clothesline. A double clothesline. <laughs> Granted, not as devastating as the ones MJF and Adam Cole do, but still. Now, the ref had to move out of the way in order for the tag to be made. And I say that because there's a little thing that you hear about a lot, especially when wrestlers get hit with a big move and then roll out of the ring, or when they go, or when someone goes for a cover and they get a rope break. There's a little thing called ring awareness. Now, commentators use that and analysts use that to describe a moment in a match. But it's not just the wrestlers that are supposed to have ring awareness. The refs are as well. If a wrestler is going for a tag, a ref should not have to move out of the way to make that tag happen. You should already know if they're going near their partner, get the fuck out of the way. You should already be out of the way. The ref should never be blocking anything. Know your place. For example, usually in a squared circles in a ring, there's on the upper left-hand corner is where the tag partner is for one guy. Now, the tag partner for the other guy is on the bottom right-hand corner. So they're like diagonal from each other. So if you're a referee, you shouldn't be in those two areas because you're blocking potential tags. So stay in the upper right-hand corner or the lower left-hand corner when analyzing shit, when checking for submissions or checking other things. Be in those corners so you're not blocking the tags because there should be no reason for a referee to block a tag because the referee, as I mentioned many times before, is supposed to be unbiased. You are supposed to be fair and impartial. That's why you shouldn't be blocking tag partners and why you shouldn't be holding ladders. And I'm going to say that real quick, holding ladders for people climbing up and doing spots. If they need someone to hold the ladder for them to do the spot, they shouldn't be doing the fucking spot. Stevie hits a scoop slam and stomps him. Stevie shoots him off, and Jacques hits a back elbow and tags in Carl, who takes down Stevie. He then hits Booker T and then splashes onto Stevie. Stevie ducks a clothesline, hits a back suplex. Stevie hits a bicycle kick for a two count. Tags in Booker T, who hits a snapmare and a knee drop. Tag Stevie back in. They double-team Carl. Harlem Heat tags in and out. They're just doing frequent tags in and out. Booker hits a scissor kick to the back of the head. Carl rakes the eyes and scoop slams him. Carl misses an elbow drop, and so does Booker, who hits a spinner Rooney and a Harlem sidekick. Jacques pulls Booker out and slams him into the guardrail, and then Parker kicks and stomps on him, while the ref is distracted, obviously. Carl tags in Jacques, and they double stomp him in the corner. They hit Booker with the high-low, they hit a double back slam, and then Jacques scoop slams Carl onto Booker for a two-count. They continue to tag in and out and hit multiple double-team moves. Jacques locks in a Boston Crab, and Carl hits a leg drop to the back of the head. He goes Goes for the cover, but Stevie breaks the pin with a leg drop to the back of the head. Jacques and Stevie get tagged in, and Stevie builds momentum before hitting a gorilla press slam as he throws Jacques into Carl. All four men are fighting in the ring, and the ref goes down. Carl sends Booker out of the ring, and the amazing French Canadians double team Stevie and hit a double spike pile driver. And then Carl brings a table into the ring and a set of ring steps. Jacques tries to launch Carl, but he misses, and Stevie hits a side kick, and then Booker hits a flipping leg drop on Carl for the win. Robert Parker snaps in the ring, and Sherry now gets Parker for five minutes. 
And that apparently was the reason for this match. So that we can see if Sherry gets Colonel Rob Parker for five minutes. And this is a standard stipulation sometimes with managers, where if a manager is constantly interfering or constantly causing problems, sometimes the wrestler might get his hands on the manager for a five-minute deal, or it might be a fight amongst the managers themselves. So that's an advantage right there. And overall, I enjoyed the match. Like I said, uh, this is World War III, so a lot of the matches don't have a big fight feel to them except really the main event. But there's still good matches to watch. And the guys in here know how to work. And I love the double team moves. I love seeing double team moves in tag matches because that's what brings in the variety and makes it different from the other matches. Because a lot of mat tag matches today are basically two glorified single matches where a guy gets in, does a couple spots, tags his partner in, he does a couple spots. They don't really do the art of tag team wrestling, which is to tag or make it and make it fluid so it looks like two guys are trying to beat two other guys. Now, obviously, if it's a mixed match tag team, I understand doing two glorified singles matches. Like if Austin and The Rock are in one corner and Triple H and Rikishi are in another corner, obviously it's going to be two glorified single matches because Austin and Rock are not a regular tag team and Triple H and Rikishi are not a regular tag team. But when you have actual tag teams like the amazing French Canadians and, the Har and Harlem Heat, they should be wrestling a tag team, which they do. You know, that's that's how you tell them you know, an actual tag team and two random guys who are thrown together. The actual tag team has a team name, wears the same gear, has a tag team finishing move, and has multiple tag team moves they do throughout the match when they double team people. And the match was 9 minutes and 14 seconds. And as we mentioned before, Sherry got Colonel Robert Parker for 5 minutes. So that will bring us to the next match of the evening. We've got Colonel Rob Parker versus Sister Sherry. And this is one of those moments where we would say, if you even want to call it that, because <laughs> uh, Sherry attacks Parker and sends him headfirst in the turnbuckle. She then sends him over the top. Parker tries to run, and Sherry chases after him. She hits a clothesline on him, and I put in parentheses, she clotheslined him, which... Again, this is an ongoing issue that I have in wrestling that I really fucking hate. When a guy and a girl are wrestling and the girl is literally getting all the offense and the guy does fucking nothing and just sits there like a cuckold and gets his ass kicked. I fucking hate that. I really do. Because the way I see it, they're both managers. So they should be on a level playing field. Now, I can understand if it was a wrestler attacking a male manager. Yes. A female wrestler attacking a male manager. Yes. Beat the shit out of them because you're not supposed to be stronger than a wrestler. But they're both managers. Even if Sister Sherry, I think, was a wrestler back in the day. I think Sensational Sherry was a wrestler. But at this time, she's a manager. So I put her in the manager category. And Robert Parker should be able to at least get some offense or some way of fighting back. But he didn't. Because after that, Sherry climbs up top, nails a crossbody for a two count. Jacques grabs Parker and they run away. Sherry chases after him. And basically, the whole reason they hate each other is because Sherry blamed Parker for Harlem Heat losing the tag team titles. Because there was a period of time, and I think we may have even reviewed some pay-per-views about it, where Rob Parker and Sister Sherry were together managing Harlem Heat. But then they lost the tag titles. Apparently, Parker was blamed for it, and that's why Parker no longer is with Harlem Heat. Because apparently Sister Sherry blamed them. There was some tension, and Parker got thrown by the wayside. But either way, there wasn't even a pinfall, not one submission attempt. And Colonel Parker got no offense, and they ran away. So the whole five-minute deal ended up being a waste of time on pay-per-view. It's not like you're going to build this to a match down the road. So why not just have the five-minute deal? Let Parker get some offense in, get him a little bit of heat. Sister Sherry can make some kind of comeback. Give us something. So yeah, this was the dumbest part of the whole fucking show. And a waste of goddamn time. So this match was one minute and 30 seconds. And I will say, of our lives, we can't get back. And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening for the WCW Cruiserweight title. Dean Malenko defends the title against Psychosis. They lock up and Dean locks around the waist and Psychosis trips him up and locks his leg. Dean counters into an STF, but Psychosis gets to the ropes. They lock up and Psychosis gets a waist lock, but Dean powers out and takes him down to lock him in a submission and rolls him up for a two count. Basically, locks the arm and flips to a pin, which was a very fluent motion and a very good spot. I particularly like that. It's something new I hadn't seen before in wrestling, so it was great. They trade headlock, scissor, head takedowns. Psychosis hits some hip tosses. Dean works the arm and Psychosis reverses as they trade arm twists and nip-ups. Doing the classic cruiserweight chain wrestling. Dean trips him up again and locks 
in a heel hook submission. Psychosis grapevines a leg to regain control. Dean rolls out and gets the hold broken. They do a test of strength. Dean trips him up again and hooks the leg and arm for a submission. Psychosis nails a tackle for a two count and goes for a kick but misses. And then hits a spinning back kick and then drop kicks Dean to the outside. Psychosis goes for a splash but slips and hits his head on the guardrail. That was definitely a botch and did not look good at all. That was that was pretty sloppy. Dean throws him back in the ring. Dean does a snapmare and a knee drop. He then scissors his head. Psychosis grabs the ropes and Dean breaks the hold and hits a snapmare and a leg drop with an assist from the middle rope for a two count. Dean locks in a single leg Boston Crab. Dean hits a butterfly suplex into a powerbomb and then locks in the Texas Cloverleaf, but Psychosis quickly grabs the ropes. Dean attacks Psychosis in the corner. Dean then attacks leg he's been working on most of the match. Dean puts him in the tree of woe and attacks the injured leg. Dean hits a hurricanrana to the outside, misses the baseball slide, and Psychosis hits a backbreaker on the floor. Psychosis hits a flip move off the top rope to the floor and throws Malenko back in the ring. Then does a leg drop off the ropes for a two count. Then he hits a drop kick on Malenko in the corner. Malenko goes up top, but Psychosis hits a drop kick to stun him and then hits a Frankensteiner for a two count. Psychosis goes for a suplex, but Malenko counters into a small package for a two count. Psychosis nails a flip kick and then goes for a tombstone, but Malenko counters and then counter back and forth until Malenko nails the tombstone pile driver for a two count. Psychosis does a leapfrog, but Malenko leapfrogs into a backwards or a karana and a bridge roll up for the win. Now, here's how I feel about this. Obviously, Dean Malenko went over in this match and retained the title. If that was the case, why not end the match with a tombstone pile driver? I'm sorry. I don't like the idea of a tombstone pile driver not ending a match. Now, obviously, there are cases towards the end of Taker's career and when the business started to evolve where Taker would hit a tombstone and somebody would kick out. But it was always shocking because the Tombstone Pile Driver was done at times where it looked like it was going to be the finish, especially at WrestleMania. But even in the beginning, no one kicked out of the Tombstone Pile Driver when Undertaker did it. And it's a devastating move already. So if Malenko's going to go over, why not have him end it with the Pile Driver? Now I can understand if Psychosis kicked out and then found a way to get the win, then it would look better because at least Psychosis would win. But what is the point in kicking out of that move if you're going to have Malenko win? Because the Huracarana Bridge Roll-Up... Yeah, it's good, but that's only good if you're going to continue the feud, which again, why would you want to continue the feud? There's no money in this. So the whole thing just looks stupid to me. I thought it was goddamn ridiculous, and it brought nothing of value or substance to the overall show. It was basically just a match, just like almost everything on this pay-per-view was just a match. But at least some of those matches had exciting moments. This one was kind of all over the place, had botches, although the one good thing was at least there was, you know, submission attempts and stuff to make it different from the Ultimo Dragon Rey Mysterio match that we saw. And on that note, we move on to the next match of the evening for the WCW World Tag Team Titles. We have the Outsiders defending the titles versus the Faces of Fear with Jimmy Hart versus the Nasty Boys. So this is a triangle match. The Nasty Boys enter the ring and immediately start fighting with the Outsiders. So before the Faces of Fear can even come out. Eventually, the Faces of Fear do come out and they immediately get involved in the fight with both men attacking Scott Hall. The Nasty Boys were rejected by both WCW and the NWO. Both teams beat up the Outsiders and send them out of the ring. Then the Nasty Boys and the Faces of Fear start fighting. Now, apparently, the Nasty Boys wanted to join the NWO, but the Outsiders rejected them and beat them up. And because they tried to join the NWO, WCW didn't want them either because the only reason the Nasty Boys aren't in the NWO is because the Outsiders said, no, get the fuck out of here. But it makes sense because, after all, the NWO was basically an invasion of WWE and WCW. And the Nasty Boys were well known for their run in WWE. So it would make sense for the Nasty Boys to want to join the NWO. Anybody that used to work for WWE and is now in WCW, if they wanted to join the NWO, it had some merit because they were part of that company originally. Mang chops sags and the Barbarian goes to work on Brian Nobbs. Nobbs boots the Barbarian and then clotheslines him before tagging in sags and they double tackle Barb for a two count. Sags is a leg drop for a two count. Sags tags Nods back in and Sags is a scoop slam, but Nods misses the leg drop. Barb tags in Meng, and then they double-team Nods before Sags runs in and saves him. Sags is 
forced back to his corner as Meng clotheslines Nobs and then Nash tags himself in and hits knee strikes in the corner before tagging in Hall, who hits a series of punches and chops, before tagging in Meng, who clubs on Nobs, before Nash tags himself in and throws him into the corner, and Nobs uppercuts him, and then he tags in Meng, who tags in Barb, and then Hall tags himself in and stomps on Barb in the corner. Barb then grabs Hall's throat and then clotheslines him in the corner. Barb hits a scoop slam and teases tagging in the Nasty Boys before tagging in Meng. Meng stomps on Hall and then hits a forearm shot and then Hall dots his eyes and tags in Knobs. The Outsiders fight with Sags in the faces of fear, beat down on Knobs. Ref gets hit in the process as they restore order. Sags gets tagged in and hits a pile driver on Barb. Goes for the pin, but Hall breaks it up. Sags then tags in Nash, who attacks Sags, but Barb breaks up and goes to work on Nash, who boots him and then clotheslines him for a pain that Mem breaks up. Hits a sidewalk slam that Ming breaks up. Nash tags in Hall, and they double-team Barb, and then Hall punches him in the corner. Barb fights out and chops Hall before Nash breaks it up. Meng gets tagged in and back suplexes Hall for a two-count. Hall tags in Barb, and then Meng tags in Nobs. They lock up, and Nobs rakes the eyes and then drags him to the corner and tags in Sags. They club on Barb and Sags, hits a snapmare and a leg drop on the balls. Sags works the knee and then tags in Nobs who continues to work the knee. He then tags in Hall and works the knee. Hall also works the heel and slaps him until Barb breaks free and then Hall goes to tag in Nash and then the outsiders and the faces of fear go to war. Nash and Mang both get tagged in as he clotheslines Mang in the corner and then scoop slams him and then misses an elbow drop as Nobs tagged himself in. Nobs attacks Nash forgetting that Mang was a legal man. He tagged in Barb but Nobs beats him down in the corner and then throws him into Sags' boots and then tags him in and then hits a backbreaker for only a one count. Sags tags in Nobs but Barb Barb regains control and tags in Meng, who hits a pile driver for a pin, but Sags breaks it up. Meng clotheslines Sags in the corner and then tags in Hall, who beats down on him, but Sags nails an atomic drop and a low blow before tagging in Nobs and attacks Hall, and then Hall tags in Meng, who hits a snapmare, and then tags in Barb. Barb and Nobs fight before Meng gets tagged back in, and then they tag in both outsiders. They try to tag, but both teams go down to the floor. Nash lays down and lets Hall pin him before the Nasty Boys break it up, and then there's a free-for-all with all three teams. Meng fights Sags and Hall fights Barb while Nobs fights Nash. Sags clotheslines Barb over the top. Jimmy tries to interfere but Nobs takes him down. He then sends Meng over the top rope but then Hall hits Nobs in the head with the megaphone while the ref is distracted. Nash then hits Nobs with a jackknife powerbomb for the win. Now the interesting thing here is that the outsiders watched for most of the match. I also thought it was stupid that Hall and Nash were forced to wrestle but Meng and the Barbarian didn't. Also, here's my question. A while back, we had the pay-per-view review, WWE No Mercy. At one point, with No Mercy, there was a four-corners elimination match with Farouk and Bradshaw and X-Pac and Kane all fighting each other in a fatal four-way. Now, obviously, Farouk and Bradshaw were the acolytes. Kane and X-Pac were also a tag team. But because it was a four-corners match, every man for himself, it made sense to see X-Pac and Kane fight each other and Farouk and Bradshaw fight each other. However, this is a match for the tag team titles why would both tag partners be forced to fight each other and what sense would it make for one guy to pin the other guy that's why the hall nash thing was brilliant nash gonna lay down let scott hall pin him i mean why the fuck not sure it goes in the record books that scott hall pinned kevin nash but they still keep the tag belts but again that's fucking stupid. There literally should be a stipulation in these types of matches where the two partners cannot fight each other. You can't do that. That should be a rule somewhere. That should be a tag that's not recognized. Like if Nash and Brian Nobbs are in the ring, you sh- Kevin Nash should not be allowed to tag Jerry Sags. Brian Nobbs should not be allowed to tag in Scott Hall. They either tag in their own partners or one of the faces of fear. That needs to be a stipulation. Because having moments like these are fucking stupid. Because why would you fight and try to hurt each other when you're a team trying to defend your titles? So I thought that was fucking dumb. I mean, it might have been a funny moment in the match. Okay, whatever. They found a way to make it work. But that should still be a rule. Because it looks dumb and ridiculous. I thought. So I thought that was a little irritating. But overall, again, great match. That's the thing about these matches. With the exception of Sister Sherry and Robert Parker. Every match on here thus far was great. It's just a lot of them were boring. Because a lot of them didn't really have any oomph to them. Or had an emotional investment. Except for maybe Jericho and Nick Patrick. That's about it. So that's pretty much the issue here. Is that this match is very, very basic. Or this pay-per-view is very, very basic. Which basic isn't always bad. You know, it's just that 
It shows that matches are just matches without good stories behind them. That's the thing. You need to have a story to make matches interesting. You can't just have matches for the sake of having matches. Otherwise, you're just watching. The story, the characters, that's what people get invested in. Whether the match is basic or spot monkey bullshit, the story and the characters, that's what makes wrestling come alive. And on that note, we're going to move on to the main event of the evening. The World War III Battle Royal. The 60-man World War III Battle Royal. Where the winner gets a shot at the world title. We have the Giant versus Arn Anderson versus Marcus Bagwell versus the Barbarian versus Chris Benoit versus Big Bubba versus Jack Boot versus Bunkhouse Buck versus Cyclope versus Disco Inferno versus Jim Duggan versus Bobby Eaton versus Mike Enos versus Galaxy versus Joe Gomez versus Jimmy Graffiti versus Johnny Grunge versus Juventud Guerrero versus Eddie Guerrero versus Scott Hall versus Prince Ikea versus Ice Train versus Mr. JL versus Jeff Jarrett versus Chris Jericho versus Kenny Chaos versus Conan versus Lex Luger versus Dean Malenko versus Steve McMichael versus Mang versus Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Hugh Morris versus Kevin Nash versus Scott Norton versus Carl Ouellette versus Diamond Dallas Page versus LaParka versus Craig Pittman versus Jim Powers versus Robbie Rage versus Stevie Ray versus Lord Steven Regal versus the Renegade versus Scotty Riggs versus Roadblock versus Jacques Roju versus Tony Rumble versus Mark Starr versus Rick Steiner versus Ron Studd versus the Taskmaster versus Six versus Booker T versus Squire David Taylor versus Otimo Dragon versus Villiano Four versus Michael Wall Street versus Pez Watley versus Alex Wright. This match, as I mentioned before, has three rings with 20 men in each. No time limit. You throw your opponent over the top rope and both feet touch the floor, similar to the Royal Rumble. The last man standing gets a shot at the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. As opposed to, I believe, the one last year where the winner became the World Heavyweight Champion. Yes, because the title was vacant. So last year, which was the first World War III, determined who the world champion was going to be. This one determines the number one contender. Now, Benoit starts fighting Sullivan outside on the floor. Meng and Barbarian help out, but then Arn Anderson and Mongo help Benoit. Benoit throws him over the barricade and start beating down on him in the Dungeon of Doom chase after Benoit and Sullivan. They are now fighting out among the crowd. And obviously with the history of Benoit and Sullivan, I have a hard time telling if this is storyline or not. Because bear in mind, Chris Benoit in real life did take Nancy Sullivan from Kevin. And also a year later at Bash of the Beach, they had a legit shoot fight in the ring. So I have a hard time being able to tell if this if they're actually working or if they're shooting or at least fighting stiff. That's the impression I'm getting here. Regal then beats down on Hoovy in one ring. Meanwhile, DDP is getting triple teamed by Marcus Bagwell, Eddie Guerrero, and some black guy whose name I do not know. Only because I listed off those names, but a lot of these wrestlers, I couldn't remember for the life of me who the fuck they are. Half of them I never even heard of. Maybe it was Ice Train. I don't fucking know. I'll be honest with you. Some of these names I just don't fucking remember, ladies and gentlemen. Bagwell almost eliminates DDP, but couldn't do it. And then Steven Regal goes to work on Bagwell. Luger fought with Stevie Ray. The NWO stands in one corner together, waiting for the right time to strike. So they're all kind of waiting out. Keep in mind, at this point, Bagwell's not part of the NWO yet. They're still the American males, if I'm not mistaken. Conan gets involved in the fight and starts beating down on Benoit. All the Dungeon of Doom and Horseman members are eliminated. Lee Marshall gets attacked. Even the announcers aren't safe. Lee eventually got back up. Like, this is how fucking disorganized this match is. Even the announcers aren't safe. And the problem, I think it is, they have them way too close to the fucking rings. Like, if you know where the announcers are going to be, don't do anything to injure them. That's another thing. This is fucking stupid. Like, get the fuck away from the announcers. It's Again, it's called ring awareness. Know where the fuck you are. Know where the announcers are. Know where the hard cam is. And you structure your matches around that. Unless you have a spot involving the announcers, which I don't know if that was a spot or not, don't go near the fucking table. And the reason I don't know if this is a storyline or not, because I mentioned before, Lee eventually got back up. And I'm not sure if he was supposed to, because as I've mentioned before, the announcers, the referees, 
the non-wrestlers are not supposed to be stronger than wrestlers. So if he gets knocked down, is he allowed to get back up? That's another question. That's what I need to know. So the whole thing looks awkward. So if that was a planned spot, then they should have expected fucking Larry Zabisco to call the rest of the match by himself. Because if I'm not mistaken, yeah, Larry Zabisco was his broadcast partner. So Larry Zabisco should have been a one-man show after that. Or if he got back up because he wasn't supposed to get attacked, then that's on the wrestlers for not having proper ring awareness. So the NWO beats down on Disco Inferno, which is funny knowing that Disco would join them years later. Tony Rumble gets eliminated. Savo Plow gets eliminated. Plio, whatever the fuck his last name is. Mike Enos gets eliminated. Lex Luger eliminates LaParka. Marcus Bagwell works on Stevie Ray. Jimmy Graffiti, The Renegade, and Galaxy get eliminated. So now we're seeing a lot of eliminations at this point. Mark Starr gets eliminated. Rage almost gets eliminated, but skins the cat. You know, pulls himself back over the ropes. Jericho tries to pin Hoovy. Dumbass. There's, there's no pinfalls in this. What the fuck are you doing? Jericho looks like a dumbass in that moment. Chaos gets eliminated by Lex Luger. Prince Ikea gets eliminated. Joe Gomez gets eliminated by the Giant. Then Roadblock gets eliminated by the Giant. Ray beats the shit out of Disco and sends him under the ropes. So he is still in the match because he didn't go over the top. Big Ron Stud gets beat down by Pittman, DDP, Marcus Bagwell, Scotty Riggs, Lex Luger, and Eddie Guerrero. They then all try to pin him, but pinfalls don't count. So why the fuck are they doing this? Seriously, all these guys are making themselves look stupid in this moment by trying to pin somebody in a match where pinfalls don't count. So why are you going for a fucking pin? The whole concept when you're in a ring is to try and win a match. And if you know the only way to win is throw somebody over the top rope, then that means Pittman, EDP, Marcus Bagwell, Scotty Riggs, Lex Luger, and Eddie Guerrero should all be trying to toss the motherfucker out of the ring. All those guys should be grabbing him, dragging him to the ropes, and trying to throw him out. Now, if there were pinfalls, then I would understand stacking yourselves on top of each other and trying to pin the guy. But if there's no pinfalls, then you all need to work together to throw the bitch out the ring. Again, psychology. Marcus then eliminates Scotty, but then Wall Street eliminates Bagwell, and now the American males start arguing on the outside. <laughs> Which I guess makes sense, you know, because it on the one hand, you know, it is every man for himself. I get that. But you would think that your tag partner would wait until it was down to the two of you before you throw him out. So I can understand why there's arguing on the outside. And I think that this was probably the beginning of the end for the American males. Because eventually, you know, Marcus does turn on Scotty to join the NWO. So I don't know if this was planting the seeds for the eventual turn or not, but I do know that this is November 96, and if I'm not mistaken, Buff does join the NWO sometime in 97. No, actually, no, in 96. Actually, according to the news here, see, 24th, it actually says on the 25th. So the very next day, the very next day after this pay-per-view, Bagwell turns on Scotty to join the NWO and renames himself Buff Bagwell. So this did plant the seeds for the breakup. Squire David Taylor gets eliminated now. Wall Street got eliminated when DDP pulled down the ropes. So we kind of ran at him and Dallas pulls the ropes down to send him out. Scott Steiner also gets eliminated. Eddie Guerrero throws DDP into the steel guardrail. They are now fighting on the outside. Dallas knocks him out and goes to the ring. So I'm assuming at one point Eddie Guerrero pulled DDP out from underneath the bottom rope. So he wasn't eliminated. The NWO is now forced to fight since everybody is now in one ring. Because the NWO basically sat in a corner and let everybody kill each other. Now everybody has to go to one ring. Once everybody in a ring is eliminated or enough people are eliminated in a ring and there's one guy left standing, they end up going to another ring as everything slows down. Sarge gets eliminated. Johnny Grunge gets eliminated. Hurts his knee in the process. Jericho gets attacked by the NWO. Luger tries to eliminate the Giant but fails. The NWO remains in the corner. DDP eliminates Pittman. Booker T gets eliminated next. DDP and Jericho fight in the corner. Disco finally gets eliminated by Nash. Bunkhouse Buck gets eliminated next. Stevie Ray then gets eliminated, followed by Ron Studd and then Rick Steiner. Ultimo Dragon goes next by Rey Mysterio. He eliminate Rey Mysterio eliminates Ultimo Dragon. Kind of a receipt for earlier in the night. Luger eliminates Alex Wright. Jarek goes to work on six. Jericho gets eliminated. Ice Train gets eliminated. It comes down to a WWE versus NWO showdown with Hall, Nash, Six, and the Giant versus Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero, Jeff Jarrett, Lex Luger, 
and DDP is neutral as he attacks Eddie. DDP throws him into the ropes, and Steven Regal back body drops him over the top, and he's gone. The Giant, with one arm, launches Ray onto Eddie, and he gets eliminated. Hall goes to hit Jarrett with Outsider's Edge, but Regal stops it. Nash clotheslines Jarrett out of the ring, and DDP runs at Regal, who pulls down the ropes, and now Dallas goes out. The NWO eliminates Regal. Luger is now all by himself against the NWO. They huddle up as Luger stares them down. Luger then takes down Six, Hall, and Nash, but gets cut off by the Giant. The Giant runs at him, but gets stuck on the turnbuckle. Luger kicks him a couple times and sets him up for the torture rack, but Six kicks him in the back, and he drops the Giant. Hall goes for the outsider's edge, but he back body drops him over the top, and he's out. So, Scott Hall's now out of the ring. Luger Gorilla Press slams Six out of the ring onto Scott Hall and eliminates him. Luger then does a clothesline from Nash and hits one of his own before putting Nash in the torture rack. The Giant shoves Luger, causing Nash to get eliminated because he goes over the top. But then Giant throws Luger over the top rope and wins the match and the title shot. So the Giant is the last one standing. Six and Hall jump in the ring to back up the Giant. Giant picks up Nash and helps him back into the ring. Nash raises his hand and embraces him as the winner as they pose with the two sweets. So it turns out the Giant was part of the NWO, which makes it even more confusing that Sting would take out Jarrett. But also, the NWO is showing they're unified and there's no jealousy because even though Kevin Nash got eliminated by Giant shoving Luger and Luger dropping Nash and him going over the top rope, they know at least the NWO won and he also knows the Giant did not mean intentionally to eliminate Nash. And Nash seems to be the level-headed one of the NWO where he's not quick to for jealousy, he's not quick to dissension, he's not quick to turn on his buddies. So at least they're like, hey, the NWO won. We knew it was going to come down to us eventually. So that's all that matters. And the overall match was 28 minutes and 21 seconds. Now, overall, the match was very hard to follow. And that's the thing about these World War III matches. If you heard the reviews that we've done already with 1995 and 1997 World War III's, and obviously we'll be doing a, a review of World War III 98 uh, sometime in December, I think that's going to come out. Um, you would know these matches are very hard to follow obviously i do the best i can you know trying to get certain situations but usually like i said there's three different cameras it's all over the place and that's one of the hardest things about this particular match is it's hard to document anything because you're just seeing random people get thrown out of the ring and it's not until there's a major elimination or something big happens that you're even able to talk about it otherwise it's just chaos for the sake of chaos and that's never good and that, ladies and gentlemen, will officially wrap up this review of WCW World War III 1996. I uh, thank you guys for tuning in and make sure you guys follow the Boochcast. We are on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Pick your favorite hosting site and follow us there or be a super fan and follow us on all four hosting sites. Also, like us on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash theboochcast. We have archived episodes of the show as well as great content. Make sure you check out the male soap opera moment. Check out our predictions for WWE Fastlane. Find out who was right and who was wrong and be on the lookout for our Fastlane recap. Coming soon to the Boochcast Facebook page. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Boochcast. Get the latest tweets, photos, and videos. Visit our YouTube channel. Check out all of our YouTube content. And be sure to hit the subscribe button and ring that bell to be notified when future content will be posted. We got a lot of dark side reviews coming to you guys very soon. Um, due to some recent events, I am getting a lot of these done at a fast-paced rate as far as recording goes. Obviously, it's going to take me a while to edit these, so they will be coming out, but we are getting some momentum going as far as recording goes, and hopefully we'll be able to get these out to you very, very soon. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the YouTube channel, check out all the content that's there, and be ready for the new content dropping soon. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv slash theboochcast. That's where we do our live wrestling watch parties. Our next watch party will be Saturday, November the 25th for WWE Survivor Series. And of course, I'm still trying to get the team organized to see who's going to be able to provide the stream for you guys because obviously I will not be able to attend the event because I will be in Winston-Salem, North Carolina with Buff the Stuff Bagwell for WrestleCade. That's right. You can see me on Friday, November 24th and Saturday, November 25th at WrestleCade in Winston-Salem, North Carolina 
Atlanta. I'll be there with Buff, meeting the fans as we uh, sell some Buff merch and Buff takes some pictures. So you can come get your picture taken and an autograph with Buff. You can also get some Buff merch and also meet other big stars from the world of professional wrestling, minus WWE, of course. But WrestleCade is one of the biggest conventions on the planet, and we hope you guys will come out and see us. Now, if you're not in the Winston-Salem, North Carolina area and you're going to watch Survivor Series, go to twitch.tv slash theboochcast and hang out with the team, provided they can make that shit work. God, I hope so. And, of course, we have our live D&D show coming soon, our Boochcast booking battle, another special project in the works. And, of course, you can support the Boochcast by going to podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash the Boochcast slash support. Become a supporter of the Boochcast. Support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. We have three levels you can donate at. Pick the one that works the best within your budget. We have our first level, which is $0.99, cents, $1 per month. We have our second level, which is $4.99, $5 per month. The same amount of money you would pay for a Peacock subscription. I know a lot of you guys out there aren't fans of the Peacock, so don't give them money. Give us money. We got better content than the Peacock anyway. And we got the third and final level you can donate at, which is for a mere $9.99. $10 per month. The same amount of money we used to pay for a WWE Network subscription here in the United States. Ever since sold the Peacock, you got to know where to put that $9.99. $10.99, bring it over here. We got better content than Network. And unlike the Elite, we actually care about our fans. are dedicated to giving the people what they want. You have the option of paying through credit card or with GPay. And the best part is, all the money we raise goes back into the show in some capacity. We used to upgrade our equipment. We used to bring in bigger name guests, pay the bills, and take care of all the guys who work very hard on the air and off the air to make the Boochcast a success. So if you got a favorite co-host and believes are to be paid for their hard work, podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash the Boochcast slash support is how you make that happen. And then, if there's any money left over, when it's all said and done, we use the rest to feed Zechariah Scott his ramen noodles and try to get him laid. And until next time, this is Vinny Bucci, a.k.a. The Booch, saying keep on living life and take care. This has been The Boochcast. We'll talk to you guys next time. Until then, pizza, baby! Well, I see by the clock on a wall that it's time to bid you one and all goodbye. Goodbye. So long. So long. Farewell. Farewell. Adieu. Adieu. Be good. Stay well. Bye-bye. Keep warm. Relax. And eat. Take care. Stay loose. Adieu, mon vieux. À la prochaine. Goodbye till when we meet again.